0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge introduces the all-new Razor Guide Pack. Coming in at 12 ounces and in a premium wax canvas roll pack for compact storage and travel, The Razor Guide Pack is 7 blades in total, including a 5-inch replaceable blade folding knife, a 3-inch replaceable blade caping knife, and the flip-and-zip saw for wood or bone. Whether you're hunting the back 40 or chasing game deep in the backcountry, the Razor Guide Pack has it all. For more information, visit OutdoorEdge.com. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Welcome to Maximize Your Hunt, the podcast dedicated to those who want the most out of their hunting property. This podcast explores land management, habitat improvement, and hunting strategies that will help you maximize your time in the field. Follow along as industry professionals that live and breathe whitetail deer, share their secrets to success. And now, the founder of Whitetail Landscapes, your host, John Teeter.
1: Hi, I'm John Teeter, Whitetail Landscapes. This is Maximize Your Hunt. Welcome back, everybody. Hopefully, everybody's doing well. This is going to be part two. In the first podcast that we did, we had a Brian Hellbye and it was awesome. We had a great conversation about his history. We talked a little bit about the Habitat podcast and you know what they've got going on over there. You know they've been a staple in the industry, kind of a great resource. I've been on the podcast. A bunch of the folks that have been on our podcast have been on that, so we wanted to kind of collaborate with them and and you know get their input. The other host was on this, and we're going to have him on today, and he's going to talk a little bit about, you know, his history, property management, things that he's been working on over the years. And so he's got a great story to share with us today. So I'm kind of excited to get him on the line. Jared, are you on line? I am, John. Awesome. How are you doing, man? Good, man.
2: How you doing? Good, good. Good to chat with you again.
1: Good. I'm happy to have you on tonight. So let's, uh, let's talk a little bit about, you know, where you're at and, you know, a little bit more about your evolution with property and property ownership because you've kind of gone through I think a great progression and by the way you've had a ton of hunting success so it it kind of shows your expertise laying out a land plan giving people you know information you know through the podcast and applying it you know kind of in your own world and finding success so I want to hear a little bit more about you know where you've kind of come from.
2: Sure sure appreciate that John um my name is Jared Van Hees. I'm the host at Habitat Podcast, and uh, John, we had you on episode 123. For those who are interested, so that was a that was a good one back then, and, and glad to be talking with you again. Um, I live in Michigan, southern Michigan right now. I'm 35. I have three kids, wife. Um, you know, doing doing the whole family thing. Just work hard and and keep going. Um, basically. I bought my first piece of property, 15 acres, back in 2017, February of 2017. So right before I started the podcast, honestly, I started that in 18. Okay. So that was 15 acres in southern mid-Michigan, and the reason I bought 15 versus 30 or 40 or 80, well, it was affordable. Um, it's what I could do at that time. So that's, that's kind of where I started. I grew up hunting Michigan my entire life, mostly state land. Um, really learned what I, what I didn't want to do in terms of where I didn't want to spend my time. And once I learned about habitat management and and land development, how you can change your land and improve it for better hunting, it was really a a no brainer. It's like, okay, let's let's find a parcel I can afford. We can afford as family and, and get to work. Uh, So that, that was about, about six years ago this month.
1: So that 15 acres, that was your first step into the the world of land ownership. And uh, certainly you know we go back and I guess at that point you, you know you're you're kind of like, uh, oh, you know early 30s right? You're 30 years old, you bought a piece of land. That had to be a a big decision, probably family wise to to even just buy and afford land, right because it that's a resource and, and certainly t- you know t- t- taking away some of your disposable income that you had. What made you buy the particular piece you bought? What was your what was your thought process behind that?
2: Yeah, it's definitely um, something that you have to to budget, and I can tell you, my wife was looking at me crazy, like you're going to spend how much money on on a what? So, so to your point, yeah, a hundred percent. It's but it's, it's really how how bad that I want it. I, I wanted it bad, um, and so my thought was, you know, get into the fifteen and and see what I can do. I bought that 15 acres specifically because I'd walked five or six pr- parcels with a, a local real estate agent, and I just wasn't getting the gut feel for the amount of money that people wanted. And I was like, holy cow, I'm just not seeing the sign. I'm, again, your first time, though, so you don't really know what you should be seeing. But eventually, I stumbled on a 15-acre piece. It was kind of miss. Um, represented, if you will, by a realtor. There's like two pictures and, and that was it. So when I got there, I, I did some other research, realized there was a nice piece of property that it bought it up next to. It was in a a satellite area of a deer cooperative. That was one of my main requirements in Michigan. We have to rely on those to get some, some age class on our deer. Um, so those were two of the reasons. And it was affordable. It was uh 50 grand. I mean, I'm not afraid to, to talk numbers. It was 50 grand 6 years ago, and now, the I mean, I wish prices per acre were still at that. But it was affordable. It was misrepresented, so I don't think it was listed for what it could have been or should have been. And then um, it had some nice property around it. I knew the area. I knew the county at least, so not really like the neck down area, but I had a decent feeling. Still, though, it was still a risk off the bat. You don't know who your neighbors are. Right. You know, you don't know certain things until you get into it.
1: You know, that, that brings up a really important, you know, bit of data. So when people buy land and they have a chance to learn at least, you know, what's the environment like, right? What's the neighborhood like? Uh, what's the hunting pressure like? What's the deer quality like? You're going into a piece of property with all these unknowns. And... I've struggled with that. And, you know, if you don't live locally or you don't have that awareness, you know, maybe you don't even have, you know, you're within a half an hour or maybe even 15 minutes, but you know, 15 minutes can be a big difference between, you know, quality hunting and not quality hunting. But to that point, if you're going to hunt in an area that has a pedigree or, you know, it's got a, a good deer population or whatever the case may be, it's got good neighbors you know, you're setting yourself up at least to try to maintain or meet a goal that you may have an expectation. So I think that's really important that you mention that. So I'm most interested in this 15 acres and what work you did. And I know that you've killed some stud bucks on this property. I, I remember at least I think two big bucks that I remember seeing off the property. It could be wrong. Uh, but could you tell us a little bit about all the work and effort that you put into it? Because you've had time to kind of massage it into something productive.
2: Yeah, no, I appreciate the question. Um, basically, what, what I've done is everything that, I've, that I can with the tools I have, the time I have, what I'm allowed to do in terms of property size, you know, government programs, this and that. Um, I've done a little bit of everything. So, you know, with, with my podcast, it's been, you know, like you, you get to talk to all these people who you learn tips and tricks from. Well it was like it was like my playground or my, my proving grounds, my learning area. So I'd go out there and I'd, you know, plant the fruit trees. I did food plots. I planted screens of about every kind you can think of. Um, tree stands, blinds, logging, T S I work, hinge cutting, switchgrass, miscanthus, water holes, water tubs, mock scrapes. Um just, and that's just off the off the top of my head. I'm up, I'm to a point now where I'm kind of out of real estate, if that makes any sense. I've maximized or tried to maximize every square inch when it's a micro property like that. And really, it's like I could buy a bunch more fruit trees, but now I'm eating into in my food plot or or vice versa. But I'd say the, the thing I wish I done first is get a logger in there. It was logged prior to me buying it, like two years prior to me buying it. So nobody wanted to touch it. Everybody's like, it was just cut. It was just cut. Well, you and I both know sometimes what somebody else thinks is cut enough is not, so, and it hadn't been cut hard enough for my goals, which were which are to increase wildlife and have opportunities of mature deer. So to answer your question, I've done a little bit of everything, good, bad, and ugly.
1: Let's Let's talk about what didn't work and what did work. So what didn't work, at least from a strategy standpoint, maybe when you initially started and then you obviously transitioned into something a little more productive. So let's talk about your, your failures and your successes.
2: Sure. Sure. I have two failures that, that come to mind. Um, one I've, I've talked about quite a bit. The first thing I did, John, when we got the property, um, I brought my buddies out there who had a skid steer and a, a big brush hog attachment in the front of it. And we started mowing down cover for food plots, right? I wanted a huge two-acre food plot. That's what you see on on all the shows and everything else. Well, we got out there in April. And we started cutting. Um, I left barriers, you know, to hide my access and hide from the road. I didn't totally go crazy, but I I cut a lot down. And um, <laughs> that was mistake number one, right? Our our deer in Michigan, similar to your deer in New York and in Pennsylvania and some of these heavier pressure states are a little bit on edge, if you will, right? So cover has, has become more important to me um, than anything, really. So now that I look back and I mowed it all down, that was a mistake. Um, that was probably the biggest mistake I've made in trying to rebound from that. It took years. Yeah. Uh, that, and then to top it all off, that same day, first day out there, we get the darn skid steer stuck in the mud on in the middle of the property and you can't, you can't get to it. Next thing you know, my buddy's truck, we tried taking that down. That gets stuck right off the road. (laughs) So I get to, I get to meet the neighbors by banging on their door. Hey, I'm Jared. I'm the new guy. And can you help pull me out? Literally. Um, and then we, we actually had to have a wrecker come in for that skid steer, drive through my neighbor's property and come in from the high side and pull that skid out with a wrecker. Uh, this was all day number one, so yeah, to say <laughs> that mistakes haven't been made uh, would be would be a lie. Um, yeah, another mistake that I that I often look at because it's something I walk by all the time, and I sit in my one tower blind and I, I look at it. I tried to make a screen out of hybrid willows, uh, and while yeah. while I and yeah you know plenty about willows, I, mm-hmm. we talked about that on the episode when you were on my show. Mm-hmm. Um, what I did wrong was, I don't think I planted them with wet enough feet in in a wet enough area. The area gets wet, but I mean, I've had success where, unless it's an already established potted willow, the cuttings, I was just doing cuttings. They did not take as well as I had hoped um, in that area. I think some of it was due to the fact that it probably dried out. And then again, I don't think I prepped enough for the competition. I did two of them, but I don't think I prepped enough with the reed canary and everything else around there to really give them a, a fair shake or fair shot. Yeah. So those are a couple of mistakes that, that are coming top of my head uh so far.
1: Yeah, appreciate you being vulnerable and that's great. I, I mean those are obviously common mistakes and a lot of people like you, you know, they get into the project and they have this vision and it evolves. So, you know, where you're at today, what's changed? And uh where have you found like some I guess maybe you have a new approach to maybe design or maybe your perspective is a little bit different, You know, maybe even today as it was a, a few weeks ago. What do what you think in today that you've done on that property that's kind of helped you excel to the next level?
2: Yeah, another good question. I think what I've done is I've, that's helped me out, is I've really shrunk down the wide open food plots to a more movement directed food source, right? Like I don't have enough ground or acreage to, to hold them all night long for a destination food plot. They'll spend a while there, especially with a quality food plot, as you know, but what I've done is I've taken those wide open fields that I cut in right off the bat and I've spent the last three, four years growing them back in um, on the edges, making more of a shape out of it, you know, more of a, a boomerang or a kidney shape out of it than a, than a wide open rectangle and what that's allowed me to do is it's allowed me to, to get the deer into bow range at one point as they're transist- transitioning from my swamp to the big ag, which is about a mile down the road. And when they're coming through my piece, they're, they're taking these, these food plot trails and these smaller corridors by design right next to my blind, then right next to my tree stand, et cetera. Um, you know, using a more a more permanent screen. Willows are are a great screen, but a more permanent screen like switchgrass. Um, I've been using that a little bit more to kind of form just a little bit of a push of push them in the right direction towards my stand as they're coming through. And that's really been a great way to help direct movement. That um, I think my my obsession with mock scrapes. I know those have been a, a you know talk of the town in the last couple of years, but I've been using those for a while and I, I think they're extremely important, especially on a small piece. You know, what's, what's to keep that buck from going through your neighbors versus yours. You know, you got, you need to have all the social hub. Yeah. Um, so I, I've taken that and then I've just, my access and, and uh, tree stand setups, they've all been kind of the same, but I'm, I'm just still, I'm still remaining extremely anal about when, where, and why you're going to go hunt and if it's not perfect, I don't show up. So it's just, um, there's, there's a few different things that I think I've honed in over the past two years there on that piece.
1: All right, I'm going to ask you a little more specific. One, and people probably want to know this. So from a mock scrape standpoint, how do you create your setups and where do you put them? Do you put them on the edge of the field, in the field? What's the layout?
2: Great question. I, I like to do mine, um, and we recommend this to all of our, our land plan clients as well. I make mine very obvious, so I'll, I'll first I'll tell you how I make them, then I'll tell you where I put them. Great. The fir- so the first would be, I'll find an overhanging area where I, you know, they're all within bow range of a tree stand. Or I should say every tree stand has a mock scrape. I make more of them that are not in bow range, but every one of them has, has a mock scrape location uh, within bow range, 20, 25, 30 yards. I'll take the ground. I'll clear out like a five foot diameter circle way too big. Right. Just obvious. Um, what that does, the soil, you know, emits a smell deer can smell that it's visual. They can see it. Um, it's very obvious. And where I put these, I'll put these along, you know, the the travel corridor. So, and what I do is I, I hang up above that big five foot circle. I call it like like a car hood above the car hood. I'll, I'll cut, I'll cut an oak branch from a green live oak tree and I'll hang that branch via zip tie, paracord, whatever, um, straight down over the, uh, the car hood area that I, that I cleaned out. Now, what that does, all those oak leaves, if you think of it like a wick, they're all, there's that much more matter up there to grab scent. Now it may be overkill. You may not need it. I've seen guys use fires. I've seen guys use ropes. Great. In Michigan, I haven't had much luck with either of those. I prefer to be as natural as possible, and there's no question this, this is great. I, I choose a, a synthetic. I've used some synthetic products in the past. I've hung drippers up there. Um, I've not hung drippers up there. Basically, I'll set it, and then I will not go back and touch it, get near it, anything like that, until I either need to swap a camera battery or, or something like that in a rainstorm. Um, So if you picture this, there's a big wide open circle on the ground. You have an oak branch hanging there. Those leaves will stay on there forever. Uh, That's what oaks do. And then a little bit of synthetic scent to start or not. But once the deer take it over, you don't need to go back in there, in my opinion. Uh, Where where I'll put these now, I'll put them in obvious locations. I'm not going to go put one in the middle of the pine thicket off to my right where deer aren't exactly going to run. Or it should run, travel, move through, etc. They'll find it, sure. They'll smell it, sure. But I want to make it as easy on them as possible to check it, use it, and move on. So it's they're pretty much, you're almost like creating a line of movement with them, along with the travel corridors I'm creating with the food plots I talked about, the hinge cutting back and forth on both sides to create the cover. You're really just creating a direction for them to move. Um or emulating what they're already doing and and increasing the value of it by by humming around it and things you can do to to improve it so I hope that answers your question I
1: think it did, you did great there so let me uh let's talk about the food plot so we had this large area that now it's you know it it's maybe took on a different shape um, let's say it was two acres or roughly you know over an acre. What's the size of it today?
2: uh, it's about cut in half
1: okay. So you shrunk it down. Go ahead.
2: Yep. There's still a big end on the one side and a big end on the other side. But where it really got shrunk down was right throughout the middle. I pretty much put a big blockade kind of in the middle to where they have to. They don't have to, but they tend to work around it.
1: That blockade that you put in, how did you create that?
2: So first, when I started doing it, I used hybrid willows. I used treetops that I drug out with my quad, and I put them in a line. And that lasted for a little while. The treetops broke down. The deer find a way through there, which is fine. I'm not trying to trap them or create a fence wall. I want them to be able to do what they want to do, or they won't use the property. But I then switched to some miscanthus. That did okay. Um, Where I'm at now is I'm at Cave and Rock Switchgrass. At eight to 10 pounds per acre. I pretty much, I, I prepped and frost seeded that two years ago, overseeded again, and been keeping up on that and they can walk right through it. But if you give them the path, the least resistance through some nice cover right next to it, they tend to walk that with the mock scrapes and food on the ground that. So that's where I'm at now. Right now it's cave and rock switch, uh, seated thick enough for a screen, not for bedded.
1: That's a great bit of information. Um, I'm just gonna add just a suggestion for folks who are, you know, listen to this in, in detail is you've got this this point coming out, or I guess we could we could, you know, say it's in a, a diamond shape or whatever the case may be pinching these deer down. You know, right on that pinch point, great place to put fruit trees, right? Just another little option for you. Um, you know, if somebody wants to put, you know, small fruit trees, you know, whether they're pears, crab apples, whatever the case may be, I think that's a little added feature that, that may pull those deer up a little bit closer and and give them some added interest. So you know, just to just to add on a, to Jared's point there. All right, Jared, I love I'm, it. Yeah, I want to take you to the next the next phase because you were successful. You've killed big bucks on this property, but you recently purchased a new piece, and I, I think you purchased it for a, a unique reason. I think you can share that with everybody. And then I want to talk a little bit about that piece and and some of the maybe maybe the pitfalls or. Concerns that you currently have with it and how you're going to attack it? Because it's, it's a little bit different from the 15 acres, probably eco region wise. You know, it, I know that 15 is a little swampier, right? Um, maybe a little bit more shrub land. But what's what's this new situation you've got going on?
2: Yeah, so just just when you think you have it all all figured out and the, and the 15 becomes a little bit turnkey, a little bit. Uh, I've, I've killed I've killed three nice bucks out there in the last five years, but it's been fun. Um, it's just the family and I weren't using it together as much as I'd hoped. It was more of a, uh, Jared's going away to, to work on his, his project out there and hunt and, and kind of, you know, hone my obsession. But this next piece is more family oriented. So we are switching from Southern Michigan where there's a ton of deer, uh, the, the hunting pressure is high, but they're a little bit better. I don't want to say age class, just better nutrition down there, a lot more corn, soybeans. The deer are just bigger antler-wise in the southern part of the state, or at least I should say there was more of them. So now we're going the opposite. Like if life wasn't challenging enough, now we're going northern Michigan, almost to the Upper Peninsula, in God's country up there. Bought, I bought a 70-acre piece that is in one of the areas of the state where they get a lot of snow, more snow than a lot of other places. So the idea was what's the next project and then how can we get this to be more of a family oriented location to where we can go up north. You know, we always say a mission, go up north. And that's, and that's what I did. That's where we're at. We, we ended up putting a cabin on it first thing so we could have a place to stay and that's that's where I'm at right now. This place up here is a lot more has a lot more undulation to it than the 15. The 15 was relatively flat. This has, I mean, essentially the the thing there in onyx. I think it's got two to three hundred foot elevation change on just the one side. So yeah, it's, it's quite opposite. It's quite opposite. Different ecoregion, like you said, a lot more hardwood, hard maple forest, beech forest. Um, it does have some low ground throughout the center at the bottom of all the, the higher ridges. There is a small Creek that starts down there and kind of flows out towards some bigger water as it, as it moves across the state. But it's, it's totally different, totally different piece, heart, way harder to hunt up there. Um, way, or I should say a lot less deer and, uh, but they're still around. So I have, uh, I'm excited about it. I have some high hopes.
1: Yeah, and it's a challenge. It's interesting. You're, you're pushing yourself to, to, how far away is it from your house?
2: Three hours and 42 minutes.
1: Okay, so you even added, you know, certainly that's, a, that's another complication.
2: So, sure is. Yeah, the, other, the 15 was about an hour and 10 or so. So that was doable on most days.
1: Is land a little less expensive up there?
2: It is. Yep, it is. And that, that was part of it, too. It's definitely less expensive, but also, you know, bought it years later. And prices have, as you know, been insane the last five years. So right. uh, it's, it's it's a good piece, though.
1: So I did look at it on a map, and uh, I didn't do much research, and, and I know that you're starting to work the layout for it. But two things I recognize just based on its location. Uh, it's, a, it's in a moraine area, so that means there's undulation and change. So I look at the ecoregion first, right? And then I break down what the species would be like. For your example, you said there's going to be sugar maple and beech kind of in those, you know, kind of moraine areas. And then there's going to be lowland areas, which typically you're in a house kind of your your wetter species you know black spruce tamarack like those type of things so you're going to start to know yep. without even walking like I've never been in this location at all I'm going to know the species the next thing I'm going to start looking at is how do you how do you access this thing you know how do you how do you have this you know particular parcel and then to this point is like you're 3 and you know almost 4 hours away i mean do you even have the time to do the work and <laughs> Certainly, I, I'm sure you're looking at, you know, what logger I can get in there to start ramming and and cutting. And, and you're probably doing your layout and thinking, OK, how do I hunt this? Because it's, it's a big timber lot. You know, it's 70 acres, essentially, of yep. timber. And you're, you're trying to figure out the best way to attack a, a parcel like that. And, and the other thing I'll, I'll add is like you adding the fact that, and let, let's be clear, lake effect snow and I'm a lake effect snow region. Lake effect snow is like super impactful for the deer. It actually, you know, shifts their locations. They're going to go in lowland areas. Yes. They transition earlier in the season to, to certain yes. locations. And I, I have that same issue right here where I live is, you know, I'm on a north facing slope. The deer tend to go in the valley earlier. So you've got to hunt them at certain times. It's, there's just a lot that goes into making a decision. And And you can know all these things getting into the property. We talked earlier about making some decisions before you buy a property these are the things you knew you went into this like wanting tough and you're getting tough so what do you how are you going to attack this project
2: yeah well said um what i've learned from that area is there's there's you know there's no corn and beans anywhere near it um the lake effect snow is real the deer migrate at a certain point you hit the nail on the head there yep. um it's mostly forest there's some clear cuts around there so i've I understand, you know, northern Michigan and a lot of places clear cuts are, are, are the cornfields of the north, if you will, for lack of a better term. Yep. Um, but, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a challenge, and I'm, I'm okay with that. What I like about it is the fact that it's so steep and a pain in the butt to navigate that humans and trespassing are going to be a very low issue or non-issue, and they have been so far. Vice versa, that makes it hard for me to get around too. So first things first, you mentioned mostly timber. That's very true. It's going to be cut um, first things first. So we don't have a, in a walking trail on this place. There's no ATV trail. Mm. There's nothing. So I, the only way to get down what we call the belly of the beast at the bottom, me and my buddies who've hunted this past year, and, and coming back up is straight up hiking. So that's going to be number one: is create some infrastructure. First of all, well for me, but mainly for you know the loggers are going to create this as they harvest the mature timber. The timber hasn't been cut in about a hundred years, based on what the forester said. And what that's going to do is that it's going to create infrastructure for me, for a tractor, for anything else. But what we're going to do while we have the heavy equipment in there is I'll probably spend all my timber money paying these guys with their big equipment. Um, to help me map out and, and create some travel or some food plot locations. If they can't do it, I'm just going to run a dozer myself and and I'll do it myself. Yep. Uh, but step one is to open up that canopy to that forest floor. It's the number one thing in my book and everybody's book really. And just to get that native vegetation coming. We have a lot of beach brush and a lot of tulip maple, which are going to be interesting because even when you, Open up the canopy. um, You still have this lower sub-canopy of of these uh, more undesirable trees that I'm have to deal with. So that's where you know the dozer or mulcher or something might come in and help as well. But long, long story long. First things first: is great infrastructure and cut some trees yesterday.
1: Yeah, and, and yesterday couldn't came soon enough. So no, with, sure. with the elevation let's 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 kind of maybe get into some of the specifics and strategy you have on this right I work in elevated terrains my, my property's elevated you know there'll be areas that are you know four to 500 feet elevation i'm like around 150 to 250 foot change in elevation kind of drumlin setting it's okay. not extreme it's not like rock out, outcrops or cars sure. or anything that are very like cavey like but it's it's uh, it's steep terrain so you know, one of the things that we typically do on steep terrain is we'll go in and I'll cut um, I'll cut on contour. Uh, so the timber will be cut on contour. I'll go in with dozers, I'll put in benches and then I'll funnel deer and then I'll create like little mounds or pockets throughout that. And you'll find like forensically, like I can look at a forest stand and like tell you forensically, okay, you know, this is once this type of forest, right? And I'll know a lot of like the desirable species in, in that particular area. So you could look up your ecoregion, like we could look up Jared's ecoregion and then we get into details of what the natural plant life would be at a certain state in time. And you can kind of diagnose that based on the soil type. And so I'll think about that, which seems pretty involved, but we're thinking about things that are going to be edible. Should I cut in this area? You know, those type of things. And then, you know, it's trying to, you know, build this architecture where the deer can move through it, but we're not getting nailed hunting wise. And like, and I didn't look at your property like in a ton of detail, but a lot of times this sounds really, really odd. I'll actually put a trail right down the center of the property. Uh, if the topography is correct and everyone wants these trails the next year, I'm not saying don't do that, but I'll put a trail right down the center of property so it can spider web out and work in the different areas. And I'll use that depending on like its location. I'll use it as an access to maintenance and maintain the property. I may not hunt sure. off that area, but that's one of the strategies I would employ. And then working with those tops, those, those high areas, those high mounds, um, you can do a lot on those just to, you know, keep deer up there, but then it's, it's a question of how to conceal them because they can see, you know, a million miles away and catch you coming in in an area. So I guess those are some things I'm just thinking about offhand. What, what are you thinking? Like, how are you going to attack this project?
2: Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. There's really only one spot based on talking with a logger that he wants to go get down the hill, what we'll call the hill. So we come off the road It's and the majority of the the property, if I say two thirds is a north facing slope where up by the road it starts steep and then it gradually you know flattens out more towards the center of the property. But on, on, on the top, those north facing points, the same thing that we recommend, same thing you just said, as I'm gonna cut on those knobs. There's these there's these outcrops or finger ridges that come off the main the main ridge and they drop down the hill. I'm gonna cut on that terrain like you're talking. Mm-hmm. Now my thought was cut hard up there for the the visibility blocking. And I'm speculating because I haven't done it yet, but I'm thinking if I cut hard enough up there, I know they like to bet up against it, but if I can create enough blockage with tops and and lay those down the slope far enough, hopefully there'll be some site blockage with that. And then I, I plan to access behind all that. So I plan to access, um, I don't plan to access to where they can look down at me. Like you said, this is where the trail is going to be because the one trail to get down the hill is right through the center. It's right. It's and and those deer use it already. I've watched them use it because it's the easiest path, the least resistance to get up that hill. Sure, it, it's a it's a little draw. Um, that's where the road is going to go in. Just because I has to, but to your point, I'm not going to walk down that road, um, during October or November to hunt because well, the deer are going to be bedded up on that hill, watching. So my yeah. thought is cut hard on the terrain. I didn't think about creating a bench with some dozers. That, that's interesting. Um, that could be something to help define to some more travel up higher. Uh, most of my plan is going to be down, you know, cut hard on those ridges for vetting up top, but most of my food and whatnot is going to be down more towards the, the swamp that kind of runs through the middle on yeah. that flatter ground.
1: Yeah. It's probably the easiest place to put it. You, you almost don't have a choice. I in that think example. so. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm going to give you a strategy and just, just, just I'm spitballing because this is stuff that I've I've got to come up with all the time. This is exciting, man.
2: No, that's what we like to do, right? This is
1: like, this is like real design here. So um, what I think I find, at least in the North facing slopes, just as an example is the deer typically depending on the slope of the terrain, it's the tier are going to, the deer are going to typically going to crisscross those. Now they may sit on the high points if, if that's, you know, that's, that's an ideal location, but the slope terrain, the north terrain, typically you're going to get a thermal drop all day long, at least a good percentage of the day. This, this is, you know, contingent on a lot of weather conditions and, and obviously snow negates all that. But like, generally speaking, those early season, they'll drop through there and then they'll find if there's a knob just below, let's just say you have a north facing slope and then you have kind of a, oh, kind of like more towards the bottom and you have a, a knob or kind of a, a carve out and there's, you know, kind of flatter terrain. So it's less slope. It's within that three to five degree slope terrain. Um, and it could be just little points, little mounds, et cetera. You'll see them bed a lot lower in a north facing slope and they'll, they'll stick in that location and they'll stick there to like, oh, I don't know, you know, sometime in the morning as things heat up and you, that may be nine, 10 o'clock. And a lot of times I catch them in transition. So I'll hunt a deer on transition to those areas and then you'll pull them down to the bottom with food, and then they'll transition to another knob. And again, I think there's a lot of thermal aspect in the morning to consider. Those afternoon, what happened in the afternoon is they come out of those areas and they come right back to those kind of thermal drops. Because again, this quick temperature drop in, in these locations that those northern slopes kind of pull air into these bottoms. Those are really hard to hunt areas. And uh, you know, I've had to deal with that on my own property and client properties, but, you know, finding even the lower third in the morning can be an ideal location for a temporary bedding as they move off. You know, they'll spend 15, 20, an hour, two hours in those locations, as long as they're isolated. And like you said, enough cutting and cover in that area. And then they'll transition to the next stage, you know, and that could be, you know, depending on the wind conditions or what's preferential, maybe they want to get warmed, right? So they may go to Southern Slope. So if you have variation in the landscape that's going to draw them to these different locations because i really believe and i'll, I'll just say this not as a fact but just as an opinion um, and this is how i based a lot of my hunting strategies it's deer typically want to thermal regulate so you know stay warm or cool depending on the circumstance and they're going to want to take advantage of the winter thermal uh, these are you know not all individualistic deer but there's a there's a general tre- trend towards that so you know that's how i base how they're going to use terrain and so, you know, if you can play that into the strategy where you're giving them options and maybe there's a thicker area over here on a south facing or in this case, a north facing, they're going to start picking and choosing those locations. And sometimes it's catching them in, in transition between those two that can be ideal. Again, depending on the timing of things, but you'll get the data down when you start doing data collection with your, your trail cameras. But I don't know, just a thought that popped up into my head. I, I see this a lot on, on either properties or my own property. So I, I'm, I'm actually in a similar sure. boat than you. It's kind of cool.
2: Yeah, well, yeah, I'd like to actually see, a, see a, a par, your parcel one day and, and maybe ask you some more questions. What, what I'm wondering is with the lake effect snow and being the fact that it gets colder quicker up there, yeah. you know, how long are they going to use these north, north-facing north slopes for for bedding before they're switching gears? Luckily, on the other side of the property, and the north side, it goes straight back up again. So we go down, down, down. There's a swamp down in the middle which they do better as well based on the hunting that I've seen and, and the, what my scouting tells me, but on the other side, it goes straight back up. So I do have South facing slopes as well to work with, um, which is kind of why I I like this piece because it's so diverse. You have North facing, you have a wetland in the bottom, a thermal cover, a ton of cedars, very mature cedars.
1: Oh, yeah. Cedars. Yep. The,
2: the other side, you have the, the North facing, I'm sorry, the need the South facing as it goes back up. So to your point, I'd, I like that, and, and I'm with you. I think, I think everything is created around that. All the activity seems to be right now without any cutting, around that lower one third where it transitions. And and to your point, I'm going to make it such a diverse piece with with the cuttings and the food. I mean, there's nothing like this within, you know, quite quite a distance. So yeah, I think like you said, giving them the options of what they want multiple options, different directions, thermal bedding, bedding up on a ridge. I mean, you really have it all right there. It doesn't make it easy for me, but it makes it easy for them.
1: It's going to be a hard property to hunt. No doubt about it. Yep, but yep. what you've got going for you is got that diversity in terrain features, which give you, I would say a lot of opportunities stack deer. And that's really, really critical to the, the design and layout. And that's the reason I bought my property. Two reasons why I bought my property personally is quality soil. Number one, uh, terrain variation and then I knew it wouldn't be very huntable I can only hunt maybe three or four days a year on that property and it's ideal conditions I'm starting to lose deer as the temperature starts to drop so I knew that Mm -hmm. uh, I do have some south facing which is you know in those areas so in the south facing we've planted warm season grasses you know light food I've done heavier cutting Um, I use that kind of as a pulling source and then off those I'll have on my property, I have little knobs similar to what you're talking about, and I'll stack deer and i isolate them, um, but I'm positioning them in directions where they're not going to see me, and then I'll position them back further and maybe give them the um, ideal kind of visual acuity to an area, uh, but it won't allow me to you know be caught in transition if I'm going to hunt a particular, uh, particular region. The other thing that's to my benefit is the timing of deer, figuring, and this is this, not having this intel until you buy a property, is figuring out, when they're using a property. So when you're diagnosing when, then you can look at all the weather can you know weather features and see how they're advantaging themselves on the landscape. And so like I think over time you'll start to kind of jot down, you know, what you're seeing. And I've been able to increase or get them to come to my area an hour earlier than they were, I guess, you know, in certain locations, an hour earlier because they have general trends and movement trends an hour earlier, which has actually made the hunting a little more productive uh, for me. Uh, just based on the style and volume of cutting that I've had. And you'll see these, like these annual trends, you know, start to creep in and change based upon your habitat improvements, which is really cool because it kind of tells me I'm doing something better because they're attracted earlier on my property rather than later, just from a timing standpoint. And then the question is how long do they stick around? So, you know, I think those are all interesting features and facets. And, and I certainly will, will talk to you kind of off this about, you know, what your project's like, because I, I think following along this project is going to be an interesting story and knowing what didn't work and what did work and what you would do a little bit differently. Because I think cutting on a property like that's very tough, especially with your, your slope and elevation like you're talking there. Uh, I, I think you'll... uh you'll work with the logger obviously, but you'll go in and do a lot of fine tuning and, and uh, I think you'll figure out what works for you based upon what you're observing.
2: Yeah. I, I couldn't agree more. And to your point about annual patterns, yeah, that's something with the 15 acres. Another, another benefit to that was, you know, that I had like zero, zero mature deer coming in until mid October year one. And now they're, now they're showing up in like August and September after, after five years of the work and, they're there longer, but the annually they're there at some of the same times during season. So I could agree more. Some of the stuff you're talking about, same stuff we like to talk about and study and, and focus on. And every, I mean, a lot of my clients are in northern Michigan, too. I've, I've hunted all around northern Michigan. It's tough. Yeah. Uh, but I've been successful up there, and everybody else wants some help. That's where you know, we're, we're trying to help because up there, it's just um, it's tough. It's a little bit more spread out, uh, a lot of big country. And not a lot you know is there specifically for the deer like um like there might be in you know different parts of the state or or other states,
1: yeah, really interesting, and uh I think it's important to kind of think through this entire conversation we had today about not only you know Jared's evolution and his growth but him him making it harder on himself, which I think is is <laughs> is certainly noble, um but on top of it, obviously this helps you you know. I guess attack things maybe in a little bit different circle and certainly gives you a a diverse set of experience that you can apply with your land clients, which advantages them as well. So, you know, I can certainly relate to everything you're going through and uh, you're learning. And and obviously you've, you've got a ton of experience doing this. I think, I think we should end there. And I I think I want you to come back on because I want to hear about your journey because I know this is uh, this is an investment for you right it's investment for your family this is something you've kind of ingrained yourself in and uh, you know I think that you're gonna find a lot of success in this and I think a part of that success you're gonna have a lot of learning steps and and uh, I'm experiencing the same thing on my property. I, I wish I would have done some things differently four or five years ago but I did take the time to sit and observe before I started reacting and and uh, I, I said that with uh, Brian on our podcast at. So, him and I had before this. So, you know, I think that's, uh, it's all fun and, and it's really interesting to to think about and think through. So anything you want to end on or anything you want to talk about, maybe something to do with your podcast, anything cool going on?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, I just want to thank you for, for having me on. Um, always, you know, been a fan of your show and you know, what, what you've been doing online, been following you for quite a while ever since you've been on the show. And, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to come on and keep everybody up to date on what I call the Northern 70 here. Northern Michigan's so beautiful that I think I'm just I'm too stubborn. I'm gonna have to make it happen. Like I, I'm just gonna figure it out, right? Sink <laughs> or swim. It's going in. I'm gonna, I'm gonna just I'm already in. So yeah. it's gonna happen. We'll see how it goes. They're not 150s up there. There's a few of them, but it's gonna it's gonna be a good time. Um, as far as the podcast, I, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. We're we're on episode 200 and. 13, I think, I'm launching this week. Awesome. Uh, all free habitat information, you know, similar to yours. We're just a bunch of habitat nerds that, that love talking to people, um, you know, people like Regular Joe's up to, you know, the Mark Drury's, Bill Winkie's, you know, of, of the world, Steve Bartellas. It, it's really, we're, we just like talking habitat and becoming a better habitat manager. is kind of our slogan with the listener. So we're trying to grow and learn with the listener and, and help people out, including ourselves along the way. So all that's at habitatpodcast.com. We're going to be doing some pretty cool stuff this year. So appreciate you letting me plug that, John.
1: No, no, that's great. And I'm happy you could share and I'm happy you're on this. So, you know, thanks for uh, giving me a call. It's been great having you and Brian on and uh, you know, Jared, you know, I'm excited uh, to have you on again and who knows, you know, maybe I'll pop over to your podcast sometime soon and we can, we can chat again.
2: It'd be fun.
1: All right, man. Hey, have a great night. Thanks.
2: Thanks, John. You too. Take care.
0: Maximize Your Hunt is a production of Whitetail Landscapes. For more information on how John Teeter and his team of experts can help you maximize your hunt, check out WhitetailLandscapes.com.